Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about Daily Daf Differently, please visit jcastnetwork.org slash ddd. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. It's time for today's edition of The Daily Duff Differently. I'm David Wise, back with you from Hollis Hills, Queens, as we dive into Yoma Kaf Hey, Yoma page 25. This Duff is dedicated again to temple details, as the Bavli tries to imagine Jewish life when this central institution still stood. As we explore some of the finer points of the Duff, keep this question in mind. How do you imagine something to look if you've never actually seen it yourself? How assuredly can you assert that you know what it looks like if all you have is a narrative blueprint and a picture in your mind's eye? In the meantime, the daf begins where we left off yesterday on the question of proper priestly attire for a pais, a lottery. Rav Nachman said they wore big day chol, regular garments, while Rav Sheshet said they were in priestly uniform wearing big day kodesh. Now each Amora will bring a Tanaitic source to support his opinion. First, Rav Nachman quotes a Mishnah in Tamid that has temple chazanim attendants assisting kohanim out of their uniforms. And Rav Nachman assumes, uh, uh, assumes the kohanim in this question were the ones who had won the pais. But Rav Huna Bar Yehuda counters in Rav Sheshat's name that the Mishnah in fact describes them attending to the losers. And Rav Nachman then counters as well. And then Rav Sheshat brings his supporting source, a Baraita, and Rav Nachman has a go at him. The one factor both Amoraim have to account for is that the Michnasayim, the pants-like garment of sacred service, had to go on the Kohen first and come off last. And they weren't for an attendant to be assisting with, since, as with Seinfeld's Kramer, there was nothing between the Kohen and the attendant but a fine layer of gabardine, the Kohen would put on his own michnasaim, thank you very much. The Gemara follows up on Rav Sheshet's supporting Baraita, which had mentioned Lishkat HaGazit, the chamber of hewn stone, which was where the Sanhedrin held court in the literal sense. From the Baraita's description, with the Pais taking place on the east side of the chamber, and a Zakain, a Sanhedrin member, stationed on the west side, Abaye draws two conclusions. One, Half of the facility was Kodesh, sacred space, while the other half was Chol. Second, it must have had two entrances, one opening into Kodesh and the other into Chol. The presence of a Zakain, a non-Kohen, accounts for it being half Chol, but the Pais is connected to sacred service. So if it took place in Lishkata Gazit, part of that room must have been Kodesh. Again, Abaye is going on the basis of rules recorded in Tanaitic sources, and what he knows about who is allowed to be where, and what activities must take place where, and under what conditions. But Abaye lived centuries after the Second Temple was destroyed. 
No Tanaitic source says explicitly that Lishkat Hagazit straddled the boundary between sanctity and normal turf, nor do we have a blueprint of its exit ways. All the rabbis, especially the Amoraim, have all the all the rabbis, especially the Amoraim, have of the temple is their imagination. But at least it's an imagination dictated by logic. We've come to the second Mishnah of the chapter, and now we learn about the second of the four lotteries and the thirteen different tasks that were assigned in this pais. The Tanakama, the initial anonymous authority, and Ben Azai have one minor disagreement, though, about the order in which the parts of the animal were brought onto the altar for the Korban Tamid, the daily statutory offering. More on that soon. The first question the Gemara asks about this Mishnah is about what seems to be an awfully lengthy lottery process. Did they do a separate pais for each and every avodah, sacred task, or did they do them collectively? To answer the question using the tashma structure, two proof texts are brought, but neither is found to be beyond challenge. Finally, a baraita is brought in the name of Rabbi Chia. Lo lechol avodah avodah mefaisin. They didn't hold a pais for each and every task within the four scheduled times for lottery. But once they counted off to the Kohen with the winning number, the other 12 assignments were given out automatically. To clarify, when the lottery was announced, each coin was to hold up two fingers. Someone would announce the winning number, and then they'd count off the raised fingers until they got to the Kohen to whom those fingers belonged, because remember, we can't count Jews. In his Hebrew commentary to the Bavli, Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz notes that the Yerushalmi, the Talmud of the land of Israel, debates which 12 Kohanim would go along with the winner, the last 12 to be counted before him, or the next 12 yet to be counted. Either way, it must have worked well logistically, since they would have all been standing in more or less the same place, so they wouldn't have to spend even more time on the pais than necessary. Our daf addresses two other issues. One is about the task of receiving the blood of the sacrifice. Though we know from the Torah that this is an essential task, it isn't listed in our Mishnah as being subject to a pais. So who does it? The shochet, the one who slaughters the animal, or the zoraik, the one who is to throw the blood on the altar. Again, the emotional state of the Kohen in service is a factor in the deliberation. Do we say that collection is the shochet's responsibility because the zoraik will be too immersed in preparing to do his job and will miss collecting some of the blood? Or do we say that we can't let this task fall to the shochet because sometimes a non-kohen does the slaughtering but certainly wouldn't be allowed to do the collecting? Logic need not come into play, though, when we have a baraita that can only be interpreted to mean that the zoraik does the collecting, or, for that matter, a pretty clear statement, in fact, a mishnah cited by Rav Acha Rava of the very same point. Finally, we see four different Tanaitic opinions about the order in which the parts of the animal were offered in Korban Tamid, the daily sacrifice. As we saw in the Mishnah, one sequence was based on the way the animal walked, a sort of body part chronology. Rabbi Yose said they would be offered in the order in which the animal was flayed, 
Rabbi Akiva said it followed the order of the surgical disassembly. Rabbi Yossi Haglili, speaking like a true butcher, said that the parts are offered in order of quality. The choicer the meat, the higher priority it would be given. If there was any thought that the purpose of the Korbanot was to satisfy God's palate, well then, like anyone concerned with customer service, the Kohanim would want to make sure they began with the prime cuts. That, of course, raises the question of the ultimate reason for the Korbanot. It's a question addressed by biblical commentators of every era, of philosophers, of religious anthropologists. Might the rabbis be sharing their own perspective as consumers of meat and assigning similar tastes and needs to God? Let's call it food for thought. We'll be back tomorrow with another installment of the Daily Duff Differently. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Duff Differently and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the opening and close of this episode is Ufros, from the Epichorus album One Bead, available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.